Startup Grind Columbus is a monthly event to educate and inspire entrepreneurs. We actively live Startup Grind's global community values of give first, help others, and make friends. Startup Grind Columbus is made possible by our lead partners, AWH, builders of exceptional digital products that drive business for growth companies and Rev1 Ventures. Visit startupgrind.com slash Columbus to see a list of upcoming events and to see videos from our past events. Now, on to this month's event podcast. So many places to start. First, I sent, um, and I've told a couple of people already, I, as I do as part of doing this, I sent David an email with a list of topics and questions to talk about, and he sent me an email back that I actually didn't see until after we spoke, um, that it was a heaping pile of shit, and he didn't want to talk about any of it. And I was like, That's okay. not quite what I said, but yeah. And so then we had a conversation this morning, and he told me what he wanted to talk about instead of the questions that I sent him, um, and so we, we agreed. So um, I'm going to ask like one question, and then David's just going to um, rant for the rest of the time. Um, and we met at the... Do you, do you remember how we met? I remember where we met. Um, it was at the Columbus Foundation. Yep. You were sitting alone, very dejected, at a table um, by yourself. True. I true. was very sad. Yep. And because um, I wasn't, I wasn't like winning an award. Nobody was going to give me. a I standing wasn't getting o- an award that day. You, there was a standing ovation for you. Yeah. There was. Yeah. So maybe. What was you, it for? I don't remember. I wasn't paying attention. Was really. it for my outfit? Well, like, I didn't. What was it for? I didn't. I didn't know you very well, so I didn't really care because okay. you were just the guy sitting next to me. Right? Gotcha. That's why you were sitting alone, by the way. Because <laughs> uh, I was sitting next to you. you no, know, um, because you just didn't care. Because I didn't care. Yeah. Right. And um, so then you know you you win something because you know you've been like on national TV and this Jane Polly thing, right? And so the Harmony Project is sort of a big national deal now. And so you're like a celebrity in Columbus, and you're like a celebrity across the country. And so I, as I realized... Who no, I was, I'm not, by the way. So let's just get that clear. As I realized who I was sitting next to, then I was like, well, holy shit, this guy's like famous. This guy's like a celebrity. Famous. So maybe I should like get to befriend him. See how famous I am? Right. <laughs> so, so maybe I should you know, befriend him and, and get to know him. And, and So it wasn't because I was nice. It was because mm-hmm. I might be famous and I might be able to do something for you. If we're going to be honest. Okay. Right. Um, no, actually it was. We started, t- I don't remember who initiated the conversation, but um, we started um, using swear words, like yes. the third word, you know, in the conversation. And, and you were like, oh, all these arrogant assholes, right? And, and people, you know, patting themselves on the back, right? Et cetera, et cetera. And I was like, okay, so... That's that's who you are. Okay, I can go. <laughs> yeah. Right. And, and and then you dropped an f bomb, and I went, oh, I'm at home. Right. I'm okay. Right. Exactly. I can I can have a conversation with so, you. So so then we just made fun of people for the rest of the. It lunch. was a fun time. Right. It was enjoyable. And with so the, the, with big hearts, we made fun of people. Right. With so, right. With lots of sympathy uh, as part of it. Um, so and then, you're, you're a horrible human being. <laughs> you're terrible. And then we oh. Um, yeah, people don't know the first thing about you. Uh, <laughs> and so then we, we became friends and we started sort of hanging out and sort of, uh, you know, kibitzing about things. Uh, can you say that if you're not Jewish? You um, just did. Yeah. So yeah. Um, maybe that makes me honor, an honorary. Uh, uh, I would just steer clear and just go back to what okay. you were talking about. Yeah. Um, 
so we get together every once in a while. We talk about the trials and tribulations of, of things. So um, just so the people that aren't familiar with the Harmony Project, what is it? Why start it? What's the purpose and the mission? And then we'll so we'll do one sort of formal, normal question, and then we'll get into the the real juice. Okay. Um, so, you know, I've been trying to come up with the elevator speech for nine years, uh, and I still don't really quite have that down. But um, <clears throat> the idea <clears throat> of the Harmony Project was rooted <clears throat> in the fact that I had been in New York and Los Angeles for 20 years of my adult life, and New York and LA diversity is dismersity. You know what I mean? It's like there's just diversity everywhere. And you're on a subway car and there's 17 different countries represented in that one subway car and multiple languages and multiple religions and multiple beliefs. <clears throat> and um, I had wanted to have uh, a family. I had wanted to have uh, a, a calmer life that did not require um, having to work so hard just to pay rent um, in Manhattan. And uh, and I also didn't quite understand the importance of corporate money, and I thought that I could run a nonprofit without ever taking a penny from corporate America. Um, ridiculous, right? Um, and in 2001, I left the security of my job in New York, which was working for um, a church, uh, Marble Collegiate Church, which was where um, Norman Vincent Peale a big American pop culture, social culture icon from the 20s and 30s who wrote The Power of Positive Thinking. It had been his church. And the reason I was attracted to that church was because um, every religion, every person that went there was from different religions and different backgrounds. And, and they hired me to work with their children. And um, I remember going in and saying, so, look, I moved to New York from Columbus where I had to pretend like I wasn't gay. I mean, I wasn't fooling anyone, but I, you know, I, I, it's amazing what people will believe when they want to believe it. And, um, and I said, I don't want to have to live that way here. And, uh, and the, the person that was interviewing me said, well, do you have a problem with being gay? And I was like, no. He goes, well, then of course we won't. This is New York. But within a few weeks, most of the families, um, parents of the children that they'd hired me to work with all left the church, um, even in New York City. And, um, and I panicked and I thought they took this risk on me and now all their families are leaving this church. But my mentor, my boss, my father, the man that I really knew was my father, um, told me just to kind of keep doing what I do. Um, he said, simultaneously keep your head down and up at the same time and do your job. <coughs> and two years later we had 250 kids. They had 16 when we started and 250 kids had come in. And we had changed the way that people um, talked to the kids about religion. And we had talked to them about, we took all the stories from the different traditions and applied them in a social and cultural way. And I began to see this beautiful world forming around me of people with all these different religions, all these different backgrounds, all these different kind of socioeconomic situations, educational backgrounds. And, um, you know, I had been raised in an extremely right-wing, conservative, um, we vote this way, we eat at these restaurants, we pray this way, um, we don't ever think outside this box. And New York just shattered that box for me. 
and it made me go, this is the world that I want to create for myself and the world that I want to live in. In 2001, with the blessing of my mentor and Marble Collegiate, I went out on my own to start a nonprofit. And um, it was supposed to launch on September the 12th, 2001. And the day before uh, were the attacks. Um, and while the whole country felt it, in New York, it was, it was very visceral and, and it was right here. Um, the smoke going overhead and, and the, the, the panic um, that ensued. And I began to wonder if the world that I thought that I was imagining was not really possible um, because of what was happening there and the distrust that immediately rose in the city. And, um, but I kept pushing through and doing what I was doing. And while we had fantastic artistic success and sang with like Whitney Houston and Michael Jackson and Christina Aguilera and filled Madison Square Garden and Carnegie Hall and Lincoln Center and all those artistic things, financially, we were struggling because I didn't want to take corporate money. And I didn't really, I was like, and we were singing some songs that had kind of gospel, religious kind of stuff in there, Little G. Um, and, uh, and they didn't, of course, want to fund that. And so I decided to take a break and I went to New Orleans. That was, I grew up in Louisiana and I went to New Orleans in 2005, three months before Hurricane Katrina um, <laughs> happened. And trust me, all the jokes have been made before um, about maybe I should leave this room right now um, while you're in it, while I'm in it. <clears throat> but um, I went to New Orleans with this thought of, well, maybe I could do this idea in New Orleans because of the great racial divide um, in that city. Katrina came, but ultimately Katrina is what formed the idea of the Harmony Project. The, in the days following Katrina, um, I was just lost. Didn't really know what I would do next, where I would go. Um, I didn't really want to go back to New York. Um, I, 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 the thought of Los Angeles at that point was just disgusting to me. Um, I didn't think I would ever fit in there. And, um, and I came to visit some friends in Ohio because I was like, where can I go where I feel at peace, where I know that no natural disaster is likely going to strike, <laughs> where I know terrorists just don't even know exist? Um, you know, where can I go where I can just kind of maybe take a breather for a few days and try to get my head back on. And while I was thinking about coming here, I threw myself into some volunteer work in a little town called Ruston, Louisiana that had become a town of 40,000 from 25,000 overnight with all the refugees from Katrina. And there were so many things that were needed that they weren't talking about on television. Feminine hygiene products, nursing bras, um, uh, hemorrhoid creams. There were things that people needed but they weren't talking about this on television. They were talking about canned goods, you know, and blankets. And this was 2005, so we weren't quite able to just, you know, rally up a community yet the way we can today. But I called friends in New York and LA, and I said, look, here's a phone number of some stores. These places need these products. If you call these stores today with your credit card, <clears throat> somebody's gonna have that tonight. What you buy today, it's going to be in their hands this evening. And the response was overwhelming. And I kind of went, oh, this is like if instant gratification could be good, then this is what instant gratification is if you make it into a good thing. And people weren't putting a lot of money into some big 
idea, Red Cross, I'm not knocking Red Cross, but they weren't putting it into something on television in a campaign where they didn't know where the dollars were going to go. They knew they were calling this little Army-Navy surplus store in the cot that they bought that day someone would be sleeping on that night. And so I began to kind of spin that thought around about like, how can I connect my music to this instant gratification type thing? And I came here to visit some friends to get away. And I told them about my experience and what had been going on. And I had a good friend at that time whose name was Josh Radner. Um, Josh was on a show called How I Met Your Mother for a, a, a long time. And Josh had been a student of mine at Bexley High School when I was teaching while I was at Capitol in the 80s. And Josh said, try this in Columbus. Columbus is, Columbus is a test market town. If it'll work there, it'll work anywhere. And I was like, but there's just too many white people. Um, and they're all Christian. And I don't, I don't see any diversity here. And he's like, you have to look for it, you know? But I started developing the idea and I, I started getting hired by people to do some fundraising in the political world. I had done fundraising in, in the past. And so I started meeting some people in the community here. And I, it was, this, was the, this was getting ready for the Obama 08 election. This was kind of the pre-Obama stuff. And, um, and as I started paying attention and going around knocking on doors, I started seeing there is diversity here. Um, we're very segregated, but there's a tremendous amount of diversity here. I wasn't ready. I didn't know if this was going to be the town that I wanted to commit to. I still had my idea of what Columbus was based on 1988 um, and the Eagle and the Tradewinds Bar being right over there. That was my world. Um, and I didn't know if this was going to be where I would want to, to have the life that I imagined for myself. So I went to L.A. Um, got some really great design jobs because I don't know if you know that gay people we can all do hair and we can all do interior design um, and uh, obviously I don't do the hair but I got the interior design part of it so um, I got a few really great high profile clients was able to make a nice chunk of change and um, and then got a call would I be willing to come to Ohio for three months for as part of the turn Ohio blue campaign with the Obama stuff and all of that. So I was like, the fall in Columbus, of course. Um, and so I came out and I started thinking about this idea that I was calling Harmony Project. And I thought, well, maybe we'll try it here, you know? And maybe I've made enough connections and relationships to maybe get this off the ground, especially if I'm willing to fund it, self-fund it at the beginning uh, before asking anybody else to give any money. So, in 2009, um, filled out all the paperwork that you have to fill out, as Allison Barrett knows, to, to, uh, to do a nonprofit. Started reaching out to the community, um, telling people about it, got a few people to be interested. And I said, I'm not asking you for a dime. Uh, went and rented the Lincoln Theater, paid all the musicians, did everything that we needed to do. And knock on wood, that first concert filled Lincoln Theater two nights. It raised a shit ton of money, $48,000 for like um, after school all-stars. Um, and we collected like 1,500 toys. And I went, okay, so if I ever needed a clearer message <laughs> that, there's, uh, that there's something needed like this in this town, that was it. And I had started making relationships and friendships and, and I went, 
okay, so I, I, I can't be one of these coastal people who consider this flyover country. This is a great place to live. And maybe I'm gonna give up some of my choices that I had in LA and New York. Maybe I'm not gonna have as much of the kind of quote unquote um, fabulous lifestyle that everybody thinks that they have. Um, well, you in live New- in Blacklick now. I live I mean, in Blacklick now, pretty, yeah. That's pretty fabulous. Blacklick is the new Blacklick. I mean, you know, um, it's pretty amazing out there actually. Um, although it's bizarre when we go into Lowe's as a, as a biracial family with a gay father and two African-American sons. Um, but you know, they're adjusting uh, to us. We're not going anywhere. Um, so anyway, it, it launched here selfishly because I wanted to create the world around me that I want to live in. I wanted a world where there are people with very different religious opinions, political opinions, very different points of view, because I like a dinner party where there's a little, you know, a little rub. A little grit. I don't like it to just be everybody's, hey, hey. You know, I want a little bit of like, well, why do you think that? You know, I, I, I want to know why someone completely disagrees with what I think is just the absolute truth. Because I like to be challenged on my truth. Um, and I like to try to kind of examine that. So it started selfishly because I wanted to kind of make the world around me look like the world I wanted it to be. Um, But then it kind of took over and and went beyond anything I wanted it to be. And it kind of became its own thing. And are you okay with that? Yeah, yeah. It's so much better now than anything that I could have imagined it being. Um, It's broader. um, It's scope. It's depth. Uh, It's still small. Uh, You know, people think that it's huge. It's not. Um, It's still relatively small, but we are in a small-ish, 14th largest city in the country, small-ish part of the city because we're in that bubble that makes Columbus feel a lot smaller than it actually is. So within the bubble, I think we're kind of well-known now, but beyond that bubble, you know, nobody really knows who we are. Um, And that's not our goal for everybody to know who we are by next week. (laughs) Um, Our goal is to connect people who would not be connected. And how we do that... Jesus, you haven't asked another question. I You're told just, you I was only going to have uh, to ask one question. You didn't think that was true, and I so knew that sorry. it was absolutely true. Yeah. Since I don't get paid for this, I want that sculpture on the wall whenever I leave. Um, I've got a great spot in my house for it, man. Um, so anyway, um, the way that we do that is in service. Um, the whole idea of Harmony Project is not musical. It's social. So we're trying to build social harmony, and the way that we do it is by finding one thing that a whole bunch of people have in common, and that happens to be music. So we attract people who want to sing, who want to be a part of music, and that is what inspires our audiences, and it sells the tickets, and it gets a lot of people engaged and who want to give money um, to help support all the programs. But the goal, Um, is to actually have people who live in gated communities and people who live behind bars at a table together having conversation, knowing each other, um, being able to connect across their different beliefs, across their different opinions. It doesn't mean sacrificing what you believe um, and letting go of what you hold true, but it does mean listening and being connected. So to do that, Um, I'm not going to go back and give you the history. I'll just tell you where we are today. 
Um, today we've been in South High School now for seven years. We have a 100% graduation rate of every senior who has ever participated in our program. That's awesome. While the school has a 68% graduation rate. Um, we are proud of that because we put a carrot out in front of those kids. We say, if you do this, this is what you get. And while that's not necessarily the healthiest way to um, work with every child in this country, not every child responds to the same approach. We respond to the people that we work with in the situations that we're in. We take these children and show them the world beyond the world that they know. One of my boys' father was killed in a drive-by shooting. While he was in his house, his father was shot through the walls of his house. Um, many of my kids are in foster care in this fifth or sixth foster home that they've been in, and they're in eighth grade or ninth grade. Um, I have girls who are moms at 13 and 14. Um, and they have, to, they have to accept all of that responsibility at an age when my only responsibility was like mowing a yard to get spending money, you know? Um, and, and, but those kids are seeing a world beyond the world that they've been told is their destiny. And, but then we also say to them, don't leave your neighborhood. Learn what you learn and then turn around and put it back into your neighborhood. So these kids work in their neighborhood. This, uh, is it tomorrow, Katie? Yeah, tomorrow. We have almost 100 South High kids working with the Community Development for All People on the South Side. And they're going to be working in different locations. These kids were in Atlanta last year at the Atlanta Food Bank. And they packed like hundreds and hundreds of boxes of food and learned all about... Well, yeah, 48,000 pounds of food that they packed. Um, you know, so the idea is to give them a purpose and to replace this idea of social pity with no. Everybody has a social function and a social purpose. But then it's not just that. It's about taking those kids and then they sing via Skype to women who are incarcerated, who are part of the opioid epidemic. So we go and sing every week now for five years with women who are in prison, who are removed from so much of reality um, in the world. They were introduced to drugs by their mothers, their fathers, their grandmothers. These are mothers who are separated from their children, grandmothers who are separated from their grandchildren. And so when our teenagers sing to them, there is an amazing thing that happens in the room. You watch, you watch shoulders that are here, that are down comfortable by the time a song is over. You watch these hard-edged, grit teeth you watch the jaw lines relax. You watch the women begin to accept what's coming to them and trust it and, um, and not, not be afraid of it. Then those women who can't go outside of the prison walls but have to serve just like the South High kids do, they then Skype and sing to children who are in hospice care in South Africa. Um, these children are living without their moms, they're orphans. These women are living without their children because they're incarcerated. There's nothing more soothing to a sick child than the sound of a mother's voice. There's nothing more soothing to a mother than the sound of a child's voice. So there's this dynamic that happens across the planet when these strangers in Marysville, Ohio and Bloemfontein, South Africa sing to each other. But again, that's not where it stops. Um, the, the, the program that we started at the Commons at Buckingham, Commons at Grant, Commons at Third, um, supportive housing facilities was there are people sitting in the shadows sitting in the back of these facilities and not engaged in any way socially and they just 
sit and rock and watch The Price is Right, you know, or whatever's on the television. And I was taken over there by Michelle Heritage, um, director of the Community Shelter Board, and we said, well, these folks need to, need to be given purpose. They need to have something to do. And so we began to sing with them. Now they go out and sing to people in nursing homes and veterans events, and they connect across these social and cultural barriers that we had put up that said, you belong here. To the women, you belong here. To the South High kids, you belong here. Um, and we've all said, no, 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 we all belong in all of it. And so the social harmony that we're trying to create, we do by singing all the same songs. So right now, our choir is singing. One of the songs is John Legend's um, If You're Out There. And the song is a call to action. It says, if you're out there, sing along with me. If you're out there, I'm dying to believe that you're out there. And so our teenagers are singing that. All of our children's programs are singing that. Our differently abled adults are singing that. The women in prison are singing that. The choir is singing that. The CEOs who are in the choir, as well as the people who need a bus pass from us to be able to get to rehearsal. So we have this dynamic of people from all socioeconomic backgrounds, different religions, different political points of view, different life experiences, sharing something in common because they don't share all these other things in common. So rather than letting our divisions, which we don't disavow, we don't say that they're not there, we say that we set those right in the center of the table. We don't move them, but we sit around the table together and we share the table and we share the fact that we don't agree but we're here to build a playground or we're here to show these kids um, Atlanta and to take them to see the <clears throat> Ebenezer Baptist Church or to learn about 16th Street Baptist Church and learn about the Civil Rights March. Or we take our women out of the prison, which the state now allows me to do, um, which we were the first program that they ever allowed that to happen with, and I was terrified the first time that nothing would go wrong. Um, and now women are released monthly, two or three times a month sometimes, to go out and sing and perform in the community. They sang at the GCAC luncheon um, a couple of years ago. So why it started, how it started, is all kind of the same thing. And what we're doing right now is I, I feel like nine years ago it started at a time when it felt like, you know, it was a false feeling. But it was a feeling of, oh, everything's going to be better now. We've elected an African-American president, and we've kind of crossed that hurdle, and now we're all going to be able to kind of be like, all right, we're, we're more progressive now. We're more thoughtful. Um, and it's like, yeah, that was a false belief. <laughs> um, and then now we're in a situation where everybody wants to blame the current president, the current administration, for all of our ills. Um, well, most of the people who want to do all the blaming for all of them are people who have not been victims of of the system that we're in for more than three or four years because most people who've been around know that the situation we're in is not new. Um, it's exacerbated a bit, but it's not new. So nine years ago, we started it feeling like we're kind of riding the wave. And now I feel like the wave is huge, like a tsunami, and that we're trying to kind of find our way through it and swim through it. And how do we keep people coming to that table when both sides of the table are now calling each other evil and both sides of the table are now blaming each other and they have their own set of rules, their own set of truths, their own set of everything for why each other is evil. 
And how do we create that middle space where we can, we can each still hold on to what we know is our truth, but find some room for compromise and conversation and collaboration so that we can try to move us forward? Um, <clears throat> so there's never a bad time to start something like the Harmony Project. Is it, as, as you were just beginning to, to speak to, is it even more important now than it was in 2009? I think it's equally important. I mean, now as it was then, I just think that, I think that what, I think that it's more obvious right now what, where we are um, and what we're facing. Um, because look, I mean, I, I grew up in New York. Donald Trump went to my church. <laughs> um, you know, he showed up on Easter and Christmas, um, but still, he showed up. Um, it's more than I've done for the last 10 years. Um, you know, Trump, he's bigger than life. He's larger than life. And so whether you hate him, love him, and it seems like there's very little in between, whether you hate him or love him, he's a master at what he does. And he's able to communicate what he wants to be heard. And his communication right now is, you're evil, I'm the champion, I'm the savior. And he's not the first president to do that, but he's the first one to do it in the way that he's done it. Why do you think that, <clears throat> as humans, that we need to identify with a, a, a tribe versus be okay being sort of in, in the middle and being on an island, right, and, and being independent, right? Because it does seem like both sides want the same things, right? But getting them to come together and to getting the, the two tribes to sort of be open-minded and vulnerable and be willing to sort of in, in, engage in a conversation um, seems commonsensical and easy on the surface, but nearly impossible to pull off. Well, let me start with the first part of that, the why do we want to be in tribes? Well, even though I don't use the phrase, so I won't use it, but I'll just, there is a phrase that's not necessarily a PC phrase. It refers to, you know, Judaism and Christianity. Um, and people throw those two words together all the time and make a, a hyphenated phrase out of it. But the, the two religions are very different. But it goes back to the fact that our civilization, the modern civilization, it, it started with tribes. Jacob and Esau, um, if you go to the Hebrew Bible um, or what the Christians call the Old Testament, um, and, you, and you go back to this story of Jacob and Esau, and you go back to these stories of division from the very beginning, from the very beginning, we were, we were, we were inserting and separating. Pick a side. Yeah. Adam and Eve, she made him bad. That's where it started. I mean, that's where it started with us, with men dominating and, and taking over, and is that women were put into the role of the temptress, the seductress with the snake. The story of the, story of the Garden of Eden, I believe, is the most misunderstood story of, of all of religion. Um, for me, the story is a modern-day story of you have everything that you need. That one thing over there, you don't need. So don't take that. Because when you do, we throw the world out of balance. 
And that's what that story is for me, is a story of there's humanity, you have more than you could possibly imagine that you ever need. Don't take more, because when you do poverty, plight, um, uh, illness, you know, sickness, all these things come about because we take more than we want, we take more than we need, and that can hopefully get us out of this rabbit hole that I'm about to go down um, with religion and, and get us back to what we're here for tonight, which I want to try to at least honor this much of what you wanted to talk about. Um, and that is to say that in starting a business, in, in, in starting a, a nonprofit, good in save. starting a good, a, good save, save, good save. Um, that, that in doing those things, um, we have to consider who we're serving, why we're here to serve, and, and then importantly, who we're working with in the process of why we're serving. Because I know that one of your questions you wanted to ask me was something about that. Yeah, right. And cl right. clearly you... you I will go down questions. the religion right. rabbit hole real uh, fast. So, so as, as creators and initiators, right, whether you're starting a, a startup which has a commercial intent of commercial viability versus starting something like the Harmony Project, which you also want to be commercially viable and successful because otherwise it's not really sustainable, right? right? Um, what sort of obligation do you have as a creator and an initiator of something of its role in the community and sort of the social fabric, if at all? Or is it as long as you accomplish your mission and your purpose, be damn everybody else, or is there a, a an integrity and sort of a a compass as part of it that is important to consider as the creator and the initiator? Mm -hmm. um, so I'm not actually going back down the religion rabbit hole, but I'm going to reference a rabbi uh, to your answer. His name was Rabbi Hillel. Um, he lived in the first century after the Common Era, and Rabbi Hillel offered three questions. And he said that the three questions to approach life with are these. Um, if I don't speak for me, who will? But if I only speak of me, then what does that make me? And if not now, when? And I personally think that those three questions apply to every entrepreneur, every person who would ever start up a business. Um, is if you start by saying, of course you have to tell your own story. Of course you can't be afraid of people going, well, they're so self-serving. Yes, we are. <laughs> We're self-serving so that we can then serve others. But we have to serve ourselves first. That cliched thing of the, you know, the oxygen mask goes on you first. Um, but that's true. In a business, the business has to serve its own business first. The nonprofit has to serve itself first. Then you're strong enough to go out and accomplish your mission. The second part of that, the second question, but if I only speak of me, then who am I? What am I? And, you know, that is perhaps the most important of the three questions. Because once you've established your story, then you have to start telling the story of others around you as well, so that they become a beneficiary of the story too. And then the third question, if not now, when? Well, every person who's ever decided to take that leap without the net and start a business knows the answer to if not now when there is no when it's now um, if you wait something else will ultimately come up and and take your money take your focus take your time take your energy you just have to jump and you have to go and so 
I like to ask those three questions with every, uh, and my staff will tell you, I've asked those three questions with projects before. Does this, can we answer these three questions with what we're about to do? And if we can, the idea is whole proof and we can go with it. Uh, when you think about creating something, um, and you, I mean, so you've self-funded the Harmony Project, you know, for a period of time. So you, in startup terms, you bootstrapped it, right? Um, and now you have funders, corporate funders, philanth philanthropic funders. Very um, little corporate, actually. Yeah. Um, yeah, we've talked about some of that in, in um, some of our private conversations. So, we, uh, which will remain private, right? Right. Um, <laughs> yes. Um, it was somebody should have told me in, in um, starting a nonprofit, much as David has, has figured out too, that raising money for nonprofits um, is actually probably more challenging than actually raising money for a for-profit startup um, enterprise. Um, but the the, um, the question is when you're when you raise funds, right? So whether you're starting a, a company that that has commercial intent. Um, and you take um, investment from angels, venture capitalists, whoever, or you start a nonprofit or some sort of or social enterprise that takes grant money and sponsorships and corporate funds, et cetera, um, you, you, you have to balance giving up some level of, of control, mm -hmm. right? Because now those people, by writing those checks, have a say in what you do and how you do it. And what you say. And what you say. So how do you balance, how do you balance that with the Harmony Project? How do you sort of think about that, staying true to why you exist and what the mission is versus, so, I mean, you're gonna, you're, we're going back to Nationwide, right, in December. Um, and we're back to the arena, as I call it, yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I just call it the arena. Go, we're, going, we're going back to the arena yeah. um, that a lot of people can fit in. Yeah. Um, and you couldn't do that, right, with a, without a lot of right. sponsorship funding support. Right. So what's more important, the ability to carry that off so that you can touch more people and you can sort of display what you're working on and what your mission is and what your why is, or would it be, and I'm assuming you would say that that's um, the case, versus not taking that funding support and, you know, being, you know, in, in, you know, in a bar somewhere, getting a group of people to sing that, you know, only 12 people are going to hear. Well, I'm going to simplify this. It's going to be too simplistic of a response, but in, my, in the way that I categorize funding in my mind, there's three types. There's the funds that come that just, somebody just wants you to keep doing what you're doing, you know? And they want to they give you because they want you just to go with it. Good for those people. You right? Well, good for all three. Um, <laughs> or you couldn't do your job. Um, type two, strings are attached. And type three, ropes are attached. So I'm real good with strings. <laughs> I'm not so good with ropes. Um, perfect example. We did a concert in 2016 called You Are The Voice, where Martin Luther King's voice was, became the narrator of the event. And his voice was done in darkness, so that when you were in the room, you would have to hear what he was saying and not watch old footage, but really listen to what he was talking about. And the night of the show, 
I walked out of the theater with all these people saying, that was the best Harmony Project concert you guys have done. That was so powerful. And my two sons were there and they were like, that was my favorite. That was amazing. I loved it. And within an hour of the show being over, a funder, who you know, um, although you don't know who this is, but it was a funder, um, called us and told us she was pulling her $10,000 grant because she didn't like what we had said. And she didn't like how we had presented what we had presented. And she didn't like rap being sung on the stage of the Ohio Theater. So I had to not be like, okay, you racist, you know, and, and not just say what I wanted to say. Um, I had to be like, okay, so can we talk through why? You know, because I really did want to understand, like, what did she hear that I didn't hear? Um, eventually, she still took her money. Um, she came back the next year and funded again, so that was fine. But how, I, I don't know if I know how to answer the question. I know that it's kind of case by case. I know that for us to have a 500 voice choir and a 300 person wait list that we want to try to get into that choir in some way means we have to be in an arena space large enough for people to be able to participate in a performance because if we're at the Ohio, there's a limit to how many people can experience this. If we're at the Southern, there's even less space for people. And we can't have volunteers and people who don't have a performance background doing five shows in a week. They have families, jobs, things that they have to deal with. So we can't put on a week full of two weeks full of shows and go to a smaller venue and pack it out for three weeks. Um, we have to try to go bigger in our space. Going bigger means that a show that used to cost us $180,000 now costs us $340,000. So that means I have to double almost my fundraising. And, and it means that we have to try to also sell more tickets and get more people there to build that. And then it means that sometimes you knock on doors for people that you know have ropes attached. But, but you have to try to find a way because you look at the 500 people who are experiencing it, the 1,000 children and teenagers who are there having this experience, you look at the differently abled adults who are sitting in the dark corners of their facilities, who are now on a stage in a spotlight, literally waving their hands and screaming they're so excited to be singing. You look at the women from the prison who are getting on a bus and there's a hair and makeup artist backstage treating them with dignity and respect, making them feel beautiful and feel good about themselves. And you go, if I have to deal with a fucking rope or two, I'll deal with a fucking rope or two. Because it's worth it. Uh, the experience of all these people being together and being able to share in something that is as simple as singing together but the ripple of that singing is playgrounds, is meals being served, is murals being created, is people who have different opinions. I have a, I have a picture in my office of um, Tom Katzenmeyer had just gotten off the ladder at this mural that he was painting next to a young man who just died recently of a uh, heroin overdose. His name was Diego. Diego is on the ladder and he has no idea who Tom Katzenmeyer is. Doesn't even matter to him. Tom Katzenmeyer has no idea that Diego just got out of prison. But they're on a ladder and they're talking and they're connecting and they're painting together for the benefit of children who live on the west side who don't have a lot of access to the arts 
um, to education, to entertainment, and to even a safe life. That, in a nutshell, is why we're doing what we're doing. So that the Diegos and the Toms find some, some place to connect so that when we're having these big conversations about access, um, equality, social justice, Tom knows Diego's story and can tell it. Diego knows who Tom is and can reference that. And so, yeah, the ropes are, they, they make you swallow hard. They make you sometimes, they chafe, they burn. I'm using those little metaphors here, but they can, they can make you feel like you've lost your voice and that you're sacrificing something that's really important to you. And there are some of those that you have to tell, I just can't do it. But if, you can, but if you can stop and consider what the benefit is, and if the benefit outweighs the cost, that's the basic principle of business and life right there, and it applies in the nonprofit world, the for-profit world, the venture capital, the, the nonprofit funding. If the benefit outweighs the cost, go for it. So you mentioned this morning when we spoke um, that at rehearsal last night, you sort of opened up and, and um, talked um, to the choir about um, these being challenging times for even you sort of personally um, and we've had those individual conversations about the fact that when you initiate and create something um, you know if it, it it didn't exist before and it's sort of okay if it doesn't exist going forward right if the toll is sort of too big and if the and if the struggle becomes um, too painful um, so what did you say to the to the choir last night at, at rehearsal and sort of where's your head at around um, sort of the Harmony Project's role in things and, and where you know you see us right now as sort of a community uh, on large? Well, I mean, what I said to them was kind of in the moment. It's really hard to kind of recap it, but, and some of it was a more of a personal a reaction to the past couple of weeks and experiences that are going on, but, from a corporate kind of uh, conversation, what we talked about, what I said last night was that I'm, I feel like, these aren't the words I used last night, but these are the words I'll use today. I've never, I've, I don't know if I've ever before recently understood what hopelessness feels like, and I have felt hopeless at times, like, it's not going to get better. It's just going to keep getting worse. And that maybe the founding fathers who weren't even backing up what they wrote um, themselves, maybe they didn't think this through. Maybe giving us the right to kneel in prayer and the right to kneel in protest in the same sentence, they couldn't even comprehend the world that we would be in today. And maybe we need to have a God, I hate to say this because I hear it at these events and I cringe when people say it, but a more of a national conversation about like, what does it mean to be American today? What does it mean? Um, how, how do we accept each other with you kneeling right there and praying in the name of Jesus and you kneeling right there because the national anthem is being played? How do we reach the place where both of those people kneeling next to each other for very different reasons and with very different ideologies, how do we get to a place where those are both recognized and honored because they have the right to do it? Not because I agree with it, but because they have the right to do it. 
I don't know how to get there. That's not mine to solve. But I want to at least try to be a part of it. It's called Tikkun Olam um, in Judaism, Repair the World. No, I'm not Jewish for the camera. Um, but I recognize, I identify as female, black, and Jewish. So um, I'm going to go with that right now. Um, that's who I'm most comfortable around. Um, but um, it's called Tikkun Olam. It's that you're not responsible for all of it. You're responsible for repairing the part that you can. And so for me, repairing the part that I can is introducing people who are evangelical Christians to people who are atheists. Introducing someone who might be a little bit about the whole gay marriage thing to a lesbian couple with kids. Um, introducing the people at Lowe's to me and my sons when we walk in on a Saturday morning and they assume that the boys work for me, um, which is unbelievably offensive. Um, but, but I can't be offended because the offense is only going to draw a chasm between us even more I, to try to see it as an opportunity for us to just be like no 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 these are my kids and move on and then leave them with having to think about that but it's also me um, in a call that I had I'm not going to get into all the details but with the Ford Kavanaugh stuff of the past couple of weeks um, it, I had to reckon with something from 40 years ago and so I reckoned with it and I was in an interview um, with investigators um, on a phone, and the person that I had been writing through this email exchange, the name was Jody, and I assumed that Jody was a woman. And when the screen came up for us to have our face-to-face -face interview, there was this country boy from Longview, Texas, sitting at the table with his football jersey on, you know, his barely talking like that and I was like oh god I am screwed you know I assumed automatically that this guy was going to be redneck um, prejudiced against me um, not listen to what I had to say because of how he looked and sounded and I was not in a really good place when the conversation began um, physically um, what my body was just going through in that moment and he recognized that and he goes hold on hold on you know like that and he's like you don't you don't have to say anything you don't want to say but i just want to tell you i believe you i hear you and we're going to make sure this never happens to another child again like that you know and it was like holy shit like this person that i just looked at which sounds so ridiculous i know but we all do it every single damn day I immediately thought that he would never be able to to respond to what I was about to say to him because I thought of him as uneducated, redneck, trash. Just being transparent as I can be. The trash in that moment was me for, for, for not even just accepting him for where he was and who he was. He, he worked so hard to bring me around in that conversation to a place where I felt empowered where I felt uh, heard, respected, and what he did for me was give me, was walk me back from that ledge a little bit that I've kind of been standing at for the past few weeks and made me go that even though I feel all this hopelessness, that in that hopelessness, 
when I listen to the kids sing and I see them interact, when I see what the choir is doing, when I see all the people around me, when I see the community around me responding to building this community that we want to live in, I know that there is hope, not Obama poster hope, but hope that is just real and living in every one of us. And I, and I, that's, that's what keeps me going. Yeah, thank you for that. Um, questions for David before we play? He has to go to bed at 8.30. Um, he he makes me, such a big deal out of this because I get up at 4.30. He, he told me he has to be in bed at 8.30 so that he can be up at 4.30. Um, well, I don't so. have to. I, you make, why, why, why are you ruining this beautiful moment? Yeah, no. I don't have to be in bed at 8.30. I like to be in bed I don't know. Seem, you seem pretty adamant about it. I also it. have two boys at home that I need to go home and check on their homework and make sure they're doing okay. And, okay. Are there tough times um, that you just had to mentally really work on keeping yourself focused on your goal? You know what I mean? Like, uh, as an entrepreneur, there are times you're just like, oh, is this going to happen? What well, sure. Going? I mean, I think everybody that opens, that starts something that hasn't been done before, um, not, I'm, not, I'm not making a bigger deal out of what we are than what we are oh, when sure. I say that but literally had not existed before. Yeah, I mean, you're, you're nervous, but the toughest parts go back to the donor issues of living up to certain expectations and certain um, what, what they think I should and shouldn't say, and understanding that sometimes they're right, you know? That, that not, I can't always necessarily speak my truth um, because that's not what they pay me to do. Interesting. Yeah. Well, service is the, is the main component of what we do, which is what literally brings them together um, when they're out working in the community. But, you know, we're, um, I was at a meeting with Pelotonia a few months ago, and he's like, you know, we're the Bicycle Harmony Project. And I was like, yeah, and, 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 and we're the musical Pelotonia, um, is that he says, you know, our goal is community. Um, that's what we're trying to build. And they're doing it. They found people who love to ride, ride bikes. And so those people are riding bikes for a greater purpose. And we're singing together for a greater purpose. So I'm a big believer in like, stay in your lane. You can always widen it, but stay in your lane. If you find out what you do, do that. And it's just as important to know what you don't know and stay away from that. That's just, that's what's worked for me. Yeah, go ahead. Sure. Thank you for asking that. Um, well, number one, you can you can always serve. You don't have to be in a choir. You don't have to sing to serve. You have to serve to sing. Um, but you can show up and volunteer at any project that we ever have. We have a couple of macro projects a year that are big. Uh, we just had one this past week with 200 volunteers in Northland community working with New Americans. Um, and then we have our thing in the spring called One Week One Neighborhood where we go into one neighborhood with everybody and do all of our work together for massive impact. But last year we had 
50 something thousand hours of volunteer service in over, I think about 75 different micro projects. Everything ranging from singing to children at Nationwide Children's Hospital um, to um, uh, host, uh, being a, a volunteer for the German Village Garden Tour, so you get to go and see all the fabulous houses. Um, so we try to we try to like gear things toward people's abilities, and you know if you can't roll, but you can sit and answer a phone. Um, we've provided volunteers for offices before. Somebody who just wanted to volunteer to, you know, we need somebody to answer our phones for a day. We had a volunteer show up and answer phones for a day, and then she ended up in it working there. Um, we had a volunteer who started working at Reeb as a uh, Reeb Avenue Center as a volunteer who's now an employee there. Um, that's not what our goal is, but um, so you can always find service those ways, and then to pay attention when we're having drives and to be supportive to um, to sponsor a student so that they can see something beyond the world that they know. Um, you're welcome to go to the prison and and be in the class with the women and meet them and hear their stories and kind of get to know them and shatter some misconceptions about what prison life is. Um, we want people to see and experience their community maybe through a dis slightly different lens than they normally see it through. Yeah, harmonyproject.com, sorry, yeah. <laughs> and of course, and of course you can make a contribution because they will kill me if I don't say that. <laughs> So I try, um, I try to build the musical event around what's happening in our culture at the moment, but you're six to eight months in advance of when it's going to happen, and as we all know, our culture changes like in 24 hours now, but like this past summer, um, we did a, a concert called 1968, and we kind of looked back at the similarities between 68 and 2018, and and the whole focus was on Kennedy and King, um, not JFK, but RFK. And the timing was really amazing. All these books started hitting the market like a month before our show that were all about Kennedy and King. Uh, CNN did a piece, um, MSNBC did a piece. It was amazing how all this stuff started happening. So sometimes you're in the flow and the flow just takes you on and it works. And sometimes you're a little ahead of the flow or a little behind it. And um, our next concert coming up is called Sing Out, March On. And there was a little pushback when we first started coming up with that title, because people were like, uh, it sounds, sounds political, it sounds like you're making a statement. But the statement that we're making in the night is that we should all feel the freedom to sing out, and we should all feel the freedom to march on to whatever that is we're marching toward, and to whatever it is we're singing out for, as long as we're doing it for the benefit of others. So we try to respond to what's happening in the world around us. In that way, I think we're kind of all artists in that capacity, or creatives at least. I hope that answers your question. You don't get to ask questions, because you can talk to me at work. I know, but this is more like
You know, I'm not real good at that five-year, ten-year thing um, that people always want you to be good at um, as an organizational leader. But I, I could not have imagined where we are now when we started. I don't want to try to imagine what we're going to be like ten years from now. I kind of want to just be responsive and reactive um, to what's happening. I doubt I'll be doing this ten years from now. Um, my knees and my hips aren't going to last that much longer. And we don't have health insurance with Harmony Project, as you know. Um, so um, I can't keep shaking my ass in front of South High School kids and into my 60s. Um, it's rough right now doing it at this age. Right. But, um, but the growing pains, and I, and I, and I want to wrap up, I want to be sensitive to people's times and, and, and be able to get out of here. And plus, nobody wants to listen to me talk this long. Um, the growing pains that we have right now are with this many people come this many people's expectations. So if you have a product that you've released out into the world and then um, 10,000 people buy it and 10,000 people write reviews about it, there's going to be 10,000 different likely takes on it. Um, Dave Grohl uh, made that statement that you can sing a song in a stadium in front of 85,000 people and 85,000 people will sing that song back to you for 85,000 different reasons. And so the growing pain of, I think, any organization is that once you start to grow, you have to be willing to understand who you're going to listen to and who you're going to not listen to. And that it's okay to shut out some of the voices who are actually not there to help you get to where you need to go, they're there just to criticize. And so it's about determining as you grow larger, who are those critical voices that are not really about your growth, who just wanna, you know, pick at you. And, and learning to recognize those earlier and not invest your time and your energy in, in those voices, just push them away. This is a fine, Jewish black female. So help me thank him for coming and joining us today. Thank you. Thanks very much. Thanks for listening to this Startup Brian Columbus event podcast. We will be back next month with more entrepreneurial experiences and insights. Thanks again to our lead partners, AWH and Rev1 Ventures. Visit startupgrind.com forward slash Columbus to see our future events and to see videos of past ones. Until next time, keep grinding.